Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Revelation chapter 5. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. But before we jump in, let me say uh, again, just welcome to everybody, LifePoint family. Welcome back. Good to be with you uh, today. Uh, guests, if you're new here at LifePoint, thrilled that you're here. My name is Cale. I'm the teaching pastor. And uh, there's a slide going up right now. So there's a resource we've developed for you. We understand uh, being new to a church can be difficult. And so we want to make sure you have what you need. There's some QR codes in front of you on the chairs in front of you. Uh, and that's for if you're brand new or if you've been here for a little while, but you've never used this resource before, please, uh, you can use the QR code or just type in lpguest.com. The message notes will be there for you this morning, along with the guest information card. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to fill that out sometime today, we'd love to be able to connect uh, with you. Uh, speaking of uh, connection, so one of our five core values here uh, is authentic community, right? That we are family. One of the primary ways we try to live out family life is just by getting into smaller groups together, being inside of one another's homes in the form of life groups. And so life groups, all of our groups right now are on break for a few weeks, but on September 17th, so uh, excuse me, almost all of our groups, our middle school and high school groups running right now, 1825 groups running already. So if you're middle school, high school, or 18 to 25, uh, reach out to Braden. Let him know you haven't connected yet to a group and we'll get you the info you need. But for uh, the rest of us, all of those life groups and bridge groups, right? Bridge groups are sort of content-specific life groups that run for a little shorter period of time and then you can jump back into a group. Those all start on the 17th. So if you have not yet connected to a group, I can't encourage you enough to do so now. Start researching now. If you go to our website and you go up to the top right-hand corner, uh, there's a little tab there that says Get Connected. And you click Life Groups and and from there, we've got a great online directory to help you. You can search by location and by campus, and you can reach out and contact us. Or just email one of the staff members. We'll help you get pointed in the right direction. But I think here at the Delaware campus, we've got about 40 groups, right, at this point in time. And so there's a group for you if you're like, man, I just don't know that we can find time. I get it. Schedules are hard, but we've got groups meeting, I think, almost every day of the week now at it multiple times as well. So don't use that as an excuse. Um, it's good for you. I know it's hard, but jump into a group uh, starting September 17th. All right? Well, we've been calling this series uh, new. We're studying our way through uh, the book of Revelation. I hope you've been enjoying it. I know I have uh, personally. It's been helpful for me. Just to remind you of the setting of the book, if you've missed some messages, you can go back and watch that on our website. I'd encourage you to do so to catch up. But just here's the setting, right? It's the 80s, 90s. Emperor Domitian, the emperor of the Roman Empire, has decreed that all citizens must worship him as Lord and God, right? Emperor worship was a somewhat common thing at that point in time, so citizens had to just go into the temple, throw a little incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. Uh, but of course, for Christians, that was an enormous deal. Jesus is Lord was one of their main statements, right, that Jesus alone is God. And so they could not do that, and because of that, many of them were persecuted quite heavily at this point in time in the Roman Empire. Many of them, by some estimates, 40,000 killed during this time. And John, the apostle, who's also probably in his 90s at this point in time, because of the testimony of Jesus, because likely he refused to do that, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And I, this island uh, was a, a place where the Roman Empire sent criminals and enemies of the state. So for not... Uh, being willing to do that because he's a leader of the church. He's considered an enemy of the state. He's exiled to this uh, island. And on that island, the Lord appears to John and gives him a series of apocalyptic visions. 
all right, to encourage him and to encourage the church. Now, when I say apocalyptic visions, right, we've talked about that apocalypse, uh, which the book of Revelation is, it's a lot of imagery, a lot of vivid imagery, a lot of symbols, a lot of numbers. But what it's doing through all that imagery is it's trying to capture our imagination. It's not teaching us a bunch of new information as much as it's teaching us things the Bible's already taught, but it's teaching us in a different way, capturing our imagination so that it really embeds itself in our souls. John is an, or Jesus is in essence saying to John, John, I know things are hard, but keep your eyes on me. I know things are difficult right now, but I want you not to look at what you can see with your eyes. I want you to look at the eyes through the eyes of faith and see what I'm showing you so that you can see what's really true in the big picture. That's why we've said each week, the big idea of the series, that Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar. Usually when we say Revelation, we immediately all think, oh, like end times, somewhere far away when Jesus is going to return. It's about far more than that. It's not a secret code to try to calculate the day of Jesus' return. It's a call to faithfulness, a call to hope in the midst of the difficulty of living out the Christian life right here and right now. It's an unveiling that says, hey, I know this is what you can see with your eyes. I know things look dark, but I want to show you what's ultimately true, what is and what will be, the one who was and who is and will be, so that you can be encouraged. It, it comforts us to know Man, Jesus is going to win. He has won through the cross, and one day he'll return and finish what he started. But it also confronts us, and it confronts us with this question of, okay, if this is who God is, and this is where the story is headed, if this is what's ultimately true, how am I going to live my life right now? Will I give in to the pressure to live for things that don't matter, for stuff that's temporary, or will I keep my eyes and my life fixated on Jesus and on the things that last for all eternity. Now, chapter four, we covered last week. Chapter four introduces sort of a new scene, right? Revelation is a series of scenes, a series of visions. Chapters one through three, John gets sort of the initial, initial vision where he sees Jesus and Jesus speaks to him, tells him to speak to the seven churches across Asia Minor. Chapter four starts this new vision where he says, okay, then I looked and he gets a vision into the very throne room of God. And it's, it's incredible. Chapters four and five, and then the rest of the book kind of emanates from that, that throne room. And so four, we talked about last week, is, is really focused on the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, the Almighty, and it's celebrating, I mean, really the one who created all things and his majesty. Chapter five, the emphasis shifts to the, the work of redemption and to the one who has done the work of redemption. That's where we pick up here in chapter five, verse one. Then I saw, all right, so focus shifts. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, right? In ancient documents, right? A book or a scroll would have been sealed, right? With these different wax seals. But so here's, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to get lost. There's been a fair bit of ink spilt on what exactly does the scroll uh, represent? Was it like a Roman title deed or a Roman will, right? Or a codex of some sort? Uh, mostly what I've read, pretty much everyone seemed to agree in a broad sense, that scroll represents the authoritative, the sovereign plan of God for redemption in the world that was enacted by Christ and will be concluded at his coming, his second coming. It represents the purposes, the overall purposes and plan of God. 
which, and it's sealed. So we, we don't get to see, okay, what's going to happen, right? What's God's purposes for the world? Knowing that it represents his authoritative plan for the world, his plan of redemption, makes what's about to happen so powerful and so poignant. Because what's going to happen next is that the angel's going to ask, Who's, who is worthy to open it? Who's worthy to walk up there to the hand of the Almighty, grab that sucker and open it up and unveil to, to, to enact God's plan for redemption? And that's what happens next, verse 2, right? And I saw a mighty angel pr proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy to walk up there and take it out of the hand of the Almighty? And verse 3 tells us, and no one, and this is a stunning statement when you think about it, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Answer is, nobody's worthy. At first glance, going through all of heaven, all of earth, under the earth, no one is worthy. And it says, John, listen to this, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John, looking at this, goes, what are the purposes and plans of God? No one's worthy to go open it. And then verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, there's that verb again, right? Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Both of those are titles for the Messiah. So he says, John's weeping, right? Nobody's gonna be able to open this. Nobody's gonna be able to enact God's plan for redemption in the world. And the elder says, hey, stop crying. Instead, I want you to open your eyes and look. There he is, the lamb, uh, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And you can imagine, right, the anticipation and the building and this idea of celebration. Man, show him to me. What's the lion look like? Which makes the next verse so jarring and so powerful. Verse 6, right, John turns to look. Where's the lion? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I know at first glance you might not be, might not fully understand, but he just declared, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. The lion, there he is. And John looks and it's a lamb. And it's a lamb that looks as if it's been slain. And part of the jarring nature of it, the, the, the juxtaposition here, it's a lamb with seven horns. So his horns represent power in the Bible, right? And seven is the number of completeness. So it's a lamb that's completely powerful. The eyes represent wisdom. He's completely wise. So it's not a lamb that's been slain by accident. The lamb has all power and all wisdom. So clearly the slaying was purposeful on the lamb's part, something that he allowed to have happen. <laughs> it's the lamb that's been slain. And he went, verse seven, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. <laughs> Nobody else in all the earth is worthy to even look at it. The lamb just waltzes right up there and grabs it from the right hand of the Almighty. He must be equal with God if he has that kind of right and authority. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. By the way, just as a side note, if you ever wonder, like, does God hear my prayers? The answer is yes. Sometimes he doesn't give us the answers that we want. And sometimes he doesn't answer in the timeliness that we'd like. 
but they're not lost. He says it's, it's like a golden bowl full of incense, and it's the prayers of the saints. Our prayers go up to God, and he hears them, and he sees. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you, right? They just sang and worshiped in chapter four to the Almighty who sits on the throne. Now they worship the Lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood. Why are you worthy? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, we get a glimpse here of one of the most spectacular scenes in the book so far. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's seven, by the way, right? Worthy is he of all power and glory. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. All right. Four things. One, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. We're going to spend quite a bit of time right here, just deep diving into this, right? He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. But go back to verse three, right? Verse two, the angel says, who's worthy to open it? God's plan of redemption, his purposes in history. Who's, who's able to go up and take that from the hand of the Almighty and enact it in the earth? And they look across the earth and it says, no one. And that means no religious figure. Think about the stunning nature of that claim. No religious figure. The Buddha isn't worthy. Confucius isn't worthy. Muhammad isn't worthy. Abraham isn't worthy. Moses isn't worthy. No figures that so many people look at and say, right, this person, this person has this. None of them are considered worthy. No one from the present, the past, no human from the future is worthy. There's only one that's worthy to go up and take that scroll from the Almighty and enact his purposes. And that, that's an exclusive claim. And if that offends us a little bit, we need to recognize that's nothing more than what Jesus has already said during his time on earth. Jesus looked at people and said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am a way. I am a truth, right? I'm one of many ways to God. Jesus, without hesitation, looks at people lovingly and says, guys, I'm the only way. I'm the only way to the Father. There's no other religious figure, though they may teach good things, though there may be some wisdom in that, though there's some commonalities at times, right? If, if somebody looks at you and though and says, you know, basically all religions are the same, the answer to that is, man, they may teach some similarities. There may be some wisdom, uh, similar, similar wisdom in those things, but there's one fundamental difference. There's only one man claiming that he's God, that he's God incarnate, and that he is the only way to the Father. And there's only one that claimed to die and then rise again. That's Jesus. They're not the same. They claim fundamentally different things about how do you be reconciled to God? How, how can you be there? And Christianity, as far as I know, is the only one that says it's not some way that you work your way to heaven. It's that heaven worked its way to you. That God came down in the form and person of Jesus. And just as, a, as an application of this, I do think this should give us 
and, and really spur us on towards boldness and sharing our faith. And I say that as one who struggles with that sometimes. You may look at me and think, man, you're always, you must just be always so bold to share. No, <laughs> I struggle with it too. I, I don't like offending other people. For the, for, I don't like just doing that for the sake of doing it. I, I wanna try to respect other people's cultures and their, their opinions, right? And their, their beliefs, where they're from. Just like I wanna have my culture respected, right? I'm from the Midwest, born and raised in Ohio. I like corn, <laughs> Our food here is bland and mostly shades of yellow, right? You ever notice that, right? You've been having like a the classic Ohio sort of uh, potluck and you look down at your plate and you're like, okay, I got corn casserole. Uh, noodles, mashed potatoes, and a roll, and it's all different shades of yellow, right? Like, there's nothing else on there, right? And it's great! <laughs> and I, like, don't make fun of it, right? Like, I don't want you to mock that. I, that's where I'm from. I'm proud of that. I hope you are too if you're from Ohio, right? But you know what? <clears throat> we have to recognize that in our desire to say, hey, I don't want to offend you. I, we're not trying to convert someone to our culture. Jesus isn't from the Midwest. And he's not from America. Jesus is transcend, he transcends culture. He's the king of heaven. And so and as we talk to one another and as we interact with people right from different places, different cultures, different ethnicities, no, we're not trying to convert someone to where we're from. We're saying, man, I just want to introduce you to the king of heaven, the one who can save your soul. And when we see Jesus like this, when we see Jesus as the only one who's worthy, Jesus as the only one who can save, I think it gives us boldness then because we're looking at that person and saying, man, man, if you're worshiping some other God, secular, <laughs> you maybe don't call it a God, or religious, you can name it. Ultimately, it's a dead idol that can't save you. But there's one who can. There's a God who created you, who loves you. And he proved that by sending Jesus. But Jesus is the only way. And I think seeing him as that, seeing him as the lion and the lamb should give us boldness to share about who he is. Let's keep going, right? We're just gonna keep diving here. No one is worthy outside of Christ. The richest men and women in the world right now are not worthy, nor from history. The most politically powerful men and women in the world right now and from history are unable to open the scroll. The wisest, most selfless, most devoted, the ones we would consider the best of humanity. Mother Teresa, Dr. King, Gandhi, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved. None of them are considered worthy. Think about the stunning nature of that claim. The angel says, who's worthy? And if that weren't enough to, to floor us, that they search the entire earth, every person that's ever existed, no one's considered worthy. If that weren't enough to stun us, it's not just those on the earth. It says those in heaven and under the earth. Every angelic being, I mean, the one who's proclaiming it, it says is a mighty angel, he's not worthy. Michael, right? He's not worthy. Gabriel, this one floored me, right? Ga you remember Gabriel, the messenger angel that comes to Zechariah in Luke chapter one, comes to Mary. And when he comes to Zechariah in Luke one, and he's like, hey, you're, you and your wife are gonna have a baby. And, and Zechariah's like, how are we going to know that? Gabriel's response, I mean, it's, it's he's like, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And you're like, whoa. But he's not worthy. 
The 24 elders aren't worthy. The four living creatures aren't worthy, which causes you to ask the question, man, if none of these spectacular, powerful beings uh, in front of whom human beings usually want to fall down and worship, and they say, don't worship, right? We're created beings too. If none of them are worthy, then what must the one who is worthy be like? And the answer is, he's glorious. He is matchless. And there is no one like him in all the earth above it or under it. He is Jesus. He's the second member of the Trinity. In chapter four, right, we saw reference to God the Father sitting on the throne, the Almighty. We saw reference to the Holy Spirit. Now we see the Son, and he is worshiped along with the Father. He walks right up there. <laughs> Who has that? I, I can't help but think of my kids, right? There are, there's no one else in my life who has permission to interrupt me at all times, day or night who has that right and authority, right? If anyone else, as much as I love some of you, you walk in my bedroom at 4 a.m. and you're like, hey, I'm thirsty. <clears throat> Are you joking, right? Like you, you don't have that right, you don't have that authority. But Jesus the Son, right? No one else has the authority even to look at this thing. Jesus the Son has no problem walking to the very center, into the very center of power and authority and grabbing that scroll and breaking its seals and opening it. Because he's the second member of the Trinity. He's one with the Father. And then all of creation falls down and worships. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There's no one like him. And here's maybe the main application for us. If there's no one like Jesus, if he's the second member of the Trinity, if he's God incarnate, does your, does your Jesus, does your view of him reflect that reality? Like, does your Jesus look like this Jesus? Some of you, you might be here today and, and like you've never come to know Jesus and welcome to Jesus. <laughs> I hope that you leave here today going, man, if this is true, like I have two options. I can reject him or I can fall down and worship him and orient my whole life around him. That is the correct response. <laughs> There's no middle ground of like, he's neat. <laughs> but my fear is that some of us, right, that question is maybe more aimed towards some of us who are here today, brothers and sisters, who we would say like we're Christians, but if we're honest, like our our Jesus, you, you've made, Jesus is so small to you. He's this sort of innocuous, ho-hum, boring Jesus that doesn't really inspire anything in you other than to show up occasionally on a Sunday. And I'm not, that's not a knock or a dig at you. I'm not mad at you. Like, I'm sad. <laughs> I'm burdened for you that if that's your Jesus, if, if Jesus to you is this like, he's like mildly interesting, like he's, that's not the real Jesus. <laughs> And my hope for you, my prayer for you, I believe Revelation's intention for you is that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes today so where you can see, not with the eyes, right? You can't see him with these eyes, but with the eyes of faith, spiritual eyes open, you see the real Jesus. Because if you see the real Jesus this morning, your life will never be the same. You see the real Jesus. He has the power to transform you from the inside out. It's like seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. You don't, when you see the Grand Canyon, you come back, you are no longer impressed by little caverns and ravines. You can still appreciate their beauty, but you don't come back looking at those things the same way because you've seen something far greater. When you see Jesus as he really is, something happens in you where you come back to your life and as you look at stuff, you go, man, things that I once thought were so important just don't look the same anymore. 
because I've seen that which truly matters. I've seen him. There's no one like him. Second, number two, Jesus conquered by being slaughtered. Jesus conquered by being slaughtered. It says John began to weep when it seemed that no one could open the scroll. And the elder says, weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus has won so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, which begs the question or raises the question, well, how has he conquered? Jesus, or John turns to see the conquering lion. How has he conquered? And he sees a lamb that looks as though it's been slain. About 800 years before Jesus was born, there's a prophet named Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 53, he talked about this one that was gonna come and the work that he would do. And in some of the most powerful verses in the Bible, I think, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah says this, surely, it won't be on the screens, just listen here, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Guys, at the, at the very center of the gospel is this incredible paradox. The word paradox means it, it, at first when you look at it, it seems like it's a contradiction, like those two things can't go together. But when you look deeper, you realize, oh my goodness, they go together in such a beautiful way. You see, what is that paradox? That paradox is that the victory comes through the cross. That paradox is that the power of God is displayed in weakness. The paradox is that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and simultaneously he's the lamb that was slain. The paradox is that Jesus is conquered by being slaughtered. He won by first losing his life. He's honored and he's worshiped and he's lifted high because he first humbled himself to save you and me by being executed on a Roman cross in shame for all the world to see. That's the paradox of the gospel. And I've told you before, Eugene Peterson, um, pastor, author, theologian, says that Revelation essentially doesn't teach us really anything new. It just teaches us stuff we already know from the Bible, but in really spectacular and new ways. And as I read Revelation 5, I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2, that we're basically reading Philippians 2 in a different way. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul speaks to the church at Corinth, and this is what he says. Just listen with me. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, Paul says, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Paul looks at them and at us and says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, pride has no place in the Christian life. Arrogance has no place in the Christian life. Do nothing from selfish and beef. And then he goes on in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Put others above yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. Why? Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah. 
So the Apostle Paul looks at the Philippian church. He says, guys, I want you to be humble. <laughs> Love one another deeply. Consider others before yourselves. Why? Because like, that's what Jesus did. He's the lion who became the lamb. He was God, is God, but he humbled himself. He left heaven, took on flesh for you and for me, died on the cross for you and me. And, and he says, he goes on to say, in due time, like Christ, if you will humble yourself, you'll be exalted in due time as he was. But right now, I want you to be humble. I want you to consider yourself lowly, knowing that the greatest consider themselves the lowest. And those who want to be considered the highest say, no, 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 I'll be the least of these. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Because Jesus conquered by being slaughtered. Because God's power is displayed perfectly in weakness. It's the great paradox of the gospel. Our mindset, we think only of power. It has to be triumph. It has to be victory. And yet God says, no, no, I'm going to be victorious. But the way I'm going to be victorious is through a Roman cross. And the worst day in the world when the Son of God is executed by his own creation, hung in shame on a cross, simultaneously is going to be the greatest day in the world <laughs> as the Son of God is giving his life, as we're gonna talk about here in a moment, to ransom many people for God, to forgive your sin and mine, and it's leading toward the resurrection. He conquered by being slaughtered for you and me. Number three, by his blood, Jesus ransomed a multi-ethnic people for God. By his blood, Jesus ransomed a diverse, multi-ethnic people for God. There are three parts to that I want to talk about. By his blood, ransomed, and then the multi-ethnic part. By his blood, shed at the cross, Jesus ransomed us. That word ransomed, by the way, it means a price paid that buys us back from slavery. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6.20 when he tells the believers there, he says, guys, honor God with your bodies because why? Because he says, you were bought with a price. You're valuable. God paid a high price for your life. What was that price? The blood of his very son. The life and the death of his very son. The Bible teaches us that you and I were enslaved to our sin in open war against God and then Jesus paid the price for us to be forgiven, for us to be set free, and for us to be reconciled to God. By the way, that offer of freedom and reconciliation, it is still available and open to anyone who would turn from their sin and trust Jesus. Jesus' blood is as effective today as it has always been. That's why the old hymn, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Some of us here today, you came in here today, you're like, you look at your life, you look at your heart and you feel guilty and you feel stained. And you're looking for a way to wash it off, to numb the pain, whatever, to keep your eyes and your mind off of it. You can be set free today. You can be washed clean today. You plunge yourself under the mercy of God. The blood of Jesus shed at the cross for you. <laughs> the one who by his blood can reconcile you, ransom you, and redeem you, and bring you back into right relationship with God the Father. By his blood, Jesus ransomed. And then it says a people, right? A multi-ethnic people for God. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Look at verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is not new information, guys. I've told you this before, but let's just keep going over it. Christianity from its very founding has been a multi-ethnic and multicultural religion. 
I want to state this as clearly as I can. Christianity is not a white religion. Christianity is not a black religion. It's not an Asian religion or Hispanic religion. It does not belong to a specific nation, people, culture, or even continent. In fact, right, as I've said before, Christianity is the only world religion that its global center keeps moving. Hinduism, right, the global center being, hey, where are the most people? Where is its spiritual center? Where are the most people from that religion located? Hinduism started in India. Global center is still in India. Islam started in the Middle East. Its global center is still in the Middle East. You might argue maybe shifted a little bit to Indonesia, but still there. Christianity started in the Near East. Then it moved uh, to North Africa and then to Europe and then to North America and now to South America, Africa, and Asia. There are more Christians today in the global south than in the global north. There are Christians on every inhabited continent and from thousands of different language groups and people groups. And that's always been the plan. (laughs) To ransom people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language group, through the blood of Jesus. That's always been the plan. And it's beautiful. (laughs) And here's the thing. I I want, my desire for our church, I hope we live this out locally. I hope we pursue this globally. Right? Delaware's growing. Our city continues to grow, both numerically and in its diversity. And my hope for our local church is that we grow and we reflect that diversity with us because I believe local churches should reflect their community. That's my hope for us, that we're a place where every person, no matter where they're from, comes in and says, I feel like this can be family for me. This can be home. And I hope we pursue that globally. Guys, so much work has been done in the last 2,000 years reaching thousands of people groups across the world and there is still a ton of work to be done to fulfill the Great Commission. There are billions of people around the world still unreached with the gospel. That's why we're sending out teams. That's why we're partnering domestically. It's why we're partnering globally. I want us as a church to do our part and say, Lord, here we are. Use us. Why? Because Jesus has ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, nation for God. Final thing, number four. You can start rehearsing for eternity today. Now, if some of you hear that and you go, wait a second, didn't you say that last week? Yes, I did. And that's intentional. I wanted to end the exact same way because I think it's just as applicable this week. The throne room scene of chapters four and five, they climax, they culminate with all of creation, thousands upon thousands of angels, the four living creatures and the 24 elders in worship. I want to read to you again, verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, note that, circle that underline, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Every creature, every person with no exceptions. Now I told you earlier as I read Revelation 5 I couldn't help but keep going back to Philippians 2 I read to you Philippians 2, 1 through 8. This is verses 9, 10, and 11. Look at this. Therefore, listen to this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name because Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience, to death on a cross. As we sang earlier, no other king would do that for you because Jesus humbled himself that way, loved you and I that way. 
Now God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Once again, we're not learning new things. We're just seeing some of the same truths in spectacular detail. But the point is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Revelation 5 is true, why wouldn't we start rehearsing today with our lives? Last week, we asked that question, right? If, if, if this God really is who he says he is, he is worthy of far more than my Sunday mornings. <laughs> he is worthy of me orienting my life around him, centering my life around him. If Jesus is who he says he is, if all the creatures in heaven and on earth bow down and say, worthy is the lamb, Worthy is the lamb to go and take the scroll and open its seals, for by his blood he ransomed people for God, for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That demands a response of us. And someday, if, if what the scriptures teach are true, someday, listen, you're gonna stand before him. And that day can be a day of great rejoicing. It can be a day of joy as you stand before your creator and your king, your savior, your Lord, and your friend. Or it can be a day of great sorrow and grief and horror as in that moment you recognize that you wasted your life and you lived in rebellion against the one who created you and the one who saved you, the one who died in order to save you. I don't want that for you. And more importantly, I don't think God wants that for you. Right? John tells us, the same guy who wrote right, Revelation tells us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, but whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's desire for you is that you turn. God's desire for you is that when the blinders come off and you see him for who he is and that you orient your life around him, that you start rehearsing for eternity today by saying, Lord, here's my life. You conquered by being slaughtered. You gave your life for me. You gave up your crown, took on the crown of thorns for me. So Jesus, here's my life. I want to start rehearsing for eternity today. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to trust you. And for some of us, similar to last week, for some of us, that's, a, that's going to be a recommitment. That's going to be a saying, man, I've, I've said these things. I said I believe these things, but God's doing something in your life where today you need to say, no, no, no here's my life, <laughs> not just my words, not just some lip service. Lord, Jesus, here's my life, my life to the lamb who was slain. And for some of us, maybe that's for the very first time to say, Lord, forgive me. Jesus, you are worthy. Here's my life. Are you willing to start today? Are you willing to lay everything else aside in order to take hold of Christ? And if not, can I ask you to consider, why not? What is holding you back? Let me pray for you. Father, there is no one like you. Jesus, there is no one like you. And we praise you for that. And God, as we've gone into Revelation 4 and 5 and we've gotten this scene into the very throne of the universe, uh, we saw last week there's one who sits on that throne. 
And we saw today that Jesus, you are worthy to go and take the scroll. You are worthy of all praise. And Lord, right now I pray for anyone who's here today who would say, who would call themselves a Christian. But if they're honest, up until this moment, Jesus, you've been very small in their life. And if that's you, I want you to, I want you to think with me and pray with me. If today the Holy Spirit's done the work in your life of showing you, your Jesus is just far too small and he has not inspired in you worship and devotion, but maybe mere lip service or going through the motions. You have an opportunity today to repent of that and say, Jesus, I, I, don't, I want that to change. I wanna give you a moment to pray. Say that to the Lord. Ask him for new eyes to see him as he really is. and then adjust your life accordingly. And as we pray, if you're here today and, and you've never said yes to Jesus, or maybe today, in the weeks leading up to today, God has done that work in your life and you feel like maybe for the first time you're seeing him as he really is and you want to take that step to say, and here's my life. You can pray with me, you can pray in your own words, but it's a way of saying to God, Lord, forgive me and here I am. Lord, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin and thank you that you and you alone are worthy. And today I proclaim that, not just with my mouth, but with my heart. And I ask that you would save me. And from this day forward, I commit my life to you. You and you alone. Because there's no one like you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you continue to save and you continue to move in our midst. And God, we ask for more of your activity. We ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to move in this church. God, will you help us? You have ransomed us for yourself. And Lord, will you help us to go uh, to our community, our neighbors, our classmates, our teammates, our family members, and our friends, and to recognize you've placed us there on purpose. Help us, Father to share lovingly and boldly of who you are and of what you've done. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.